Well, if you have your Bible, I want you to turn to one passage. It's 11 verses uh, that we're going to look at today. John chapter 2. John chapter 2. And uh, over the last few weeks, uh, we've been talking a lot about how do we as the body of Christ, carry our cross to the, the various areas that the Lord has given us responsibility in. And, and we've, we've talked about how to carry our cross to our family and, and, and to the church and to the community. And we know that we are obviously right now we're finishing missions emphasis week and saying our, we have a responsibility to carry the cross to the world. But how many of you know the greatest way to learn to carry the cross is to, to actually go back and look at the one who bore the cross for us? When you go and you look at the ministry of Jesus, it is then that you actually begin to learn how to carry your cross. So we're going to spend the next few weeks looking at the ministry of Jesus. And today I want to speak a message to you called the first miracle. The first miracle. Now, um, I don't know uh, if, if you're like me, but uh, sometimes when I read familiar passages, I open to them and I'm like, I already know this, so I kind of speed read through it. But in this passage that we're about to go through today, I was, I was reading it in a fresh way a few weeks ago, there was more to the story. That God unfolded, and I believe he's going to speak to us today clearly out of John chapter 2. There is more to this story of Jesus' first miracle. I actually heard a story about uh, a, a man who, who took his wife and his mother-in-law to Israel. And it was a trip of a lifetime. And they said, you know what, we, I, I, we've been saving up and we're going to go to Israel and it's going to be just uh, uh, amazing. And uh, he, he goes over there, they're traveling. Well, his mother-in-law gets sick and she actually passes away in Israel. And they're mourning in Israel. And the, a pastor comes alongside of them and says, listen, listen, um, I, I want you to know that to carry your, your mother-in-law back to the States and bury her, it's going to cost you about $10,000. It says, however, what we will do for you here in the Holy Land, uh, we will we'll actually bury her for about $150. And he looked at his wife and said, I'll pay the $10,000. i am taking her. And his wife was just kind of puzzled at that. But she kind of kept silent. And as they were flying home on the plane, uh, she looked over at her husband and said, Honey, I've been wondering. I, I, you know, I trust your leadership, but 10 grand is a lot of money. Why did you choose to, you know, uh, bring her back to the United States? He says, Well, about 2,000 years ago, they buried a guy in Israel, and he came back in three days, and I couldn't, I couldn't chance it. That's good. <laughs> a lot of husbands laughing. 
Not as many wives. There's more to the story. I'm going to read you a passage today and tell you there's a little more to the story. And uh, we're going to read this with open hearts and allow the Lord to speak to us by the Holy Spirit. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, says this. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Everybody say this. Manifested his glory. This is the first miracle where Jesus begins to manifest his glory. Now, you need a little bit of a backdrop to really understand what's going on here. And uh, I'm, I'll give you a little bit of this backdrop because we do not connect culturally, culturally to this wedding. The, um, it says on the third day. Why does it bring up the third day? Is it the third day of, of Jesus's ministry? Uh, there are th- great theologians that are kind of back and forth about why it brings up the third day. Um, uh, most believe that was actually the third day of a week-long wedding reception. Women, can you imagine that your wedding reception would last for a week? Well, that's, that, that would be very common in this culture. And Cana really was really just like a village. It wasn't much of a city. There weren't that very many people there. Matter of fact, if, if uh, you were in uh, Cana at the time, you probably lived there your whole life and you knew everyone. And most of those people would have been family. And the idea that Jesus and his disciples would go to this wedding and Mary would go is that they think that it could have been for a relative of Jesus on his mother's side, not on his father's side. Some of you will figure that out later. You're like, his father's side? Where would that? Okay. Yeah. All right, think about it. It'd be on his mother's side. So it's probably a family member. And so they're all there, and it could be that this is the third day of the reception. Now, what you need to understand about this is that this would have been kind of a culmination of a year-long process. 
So about a year before, this couple would have been betrothed. We would call that engaged. In their culture, they are physically married, yet they have not consummated the marriage. At this point, the groom goes away and gets everything ready for this week. So in modern terms, modern terms, the groom makes his Pinterest pin board <laughs> for a year and gets it all together, all right? He's preparing for a year. Let me give you the, the, uh, some language that will help you to understand this. In John 14, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says this, in my father's house, now I know all my King, King James people are gonna well, wanna change my translation here, but this is actually what it says. It says, in my father's house, there are many rooms. By the way, all of you who've been singing, I've got a mansion just over the hilltop, just get over it. You're getting a room. All right. In my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Here's what every Jewish woman did. <sighs> you guys are like, man, he's talking about end times. I need to get some rice and beans. Weird. Why did Jewish women do that? Because that was wedding talk. He said, I'm going to my dad's house and I'm making a bridal chamber and I'm going to go and prepare everything for this week-long celebration, this time of celebration. I'm going to go and get everything ready and then I'm going to come back and get you. Women, don't you wish it was a little more like that today, that the men got everything ready for the wedding? Yeah, all the guys are not agreeing. The good news is in this story is that the woman does have a responsibility. Get herself ready. And stay ready. Get herself ready and stay ready. No. So here's the picture. This guy has had a year to prepare and halfway through the celebration, something's going wrong. He hasn't planned for enough. Now, there is certainly a, a, a depth of, of ministry where Jesus in this moment shows this one particular man grace and saves him from the shame that he most certainly would have borne for years in his own community as the groom who wasn't ready for his wedding. And Jesus steps in and what happens? A party ensues and continues. And they finish it. But there's more to this story that I believe God wants us to see today that all of us can grab a hold of from this first miracle. This first miracle first re reveals the glory of creation. 
The glory of creation. You see, this is when he began to what? Manifest his glory. So this first thing it reveals is the glory of creation. John 2 verse 6 says this. Now there were set six water pots of stone. Six water pots of stone. As I begin to look at this and I, I begin to think and, and research, I had to look at the fact that these were stone water pots, not clay, stone. They started off as one giant piece of stone and a master craftsman came and with the first sound of hammer and chisel begins to hew out this massive stone water pot. Uh, it was not to be used for oil. That would have been a clay pot fired. It wasn't to be used for any of these other, uh, uh, other uh, uses common to that day. This was made for water. It's a water pot Crafted by a master craftsman. And I know that nothing in the Bible is there by mistake. And how many stones got crafted in this story? Six. Which happens to coincide with how many days of creation there and on the sixth day of creation, man was created. And so here we are in, in this moment seeing that there are six water pots of stone, I believe, pointing this first miracle of Jesus, pointing back to the first miracle in the Bible, the miracle of creation. And the master craftsman comes, and we know the story of creation, but let's revisit it quickly. Genesis 1, 27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. And in verse 31, it says, Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and morning were the sixth day. So here on the sixth day, man is created. And so here we are. The first miracle is creation. And I believe this story of this wedding first tells the glory of creation. You see, man was created on the sixth day, but who was doing the creating? Who was doing the creating? Well, let's look at John 1, 1, and you'll find out. If you just jump back one chapter, you find in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. Who was creating? His name is Jesus. We find out that it's Jesus because it says, and the word was made flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us, and we beheld the glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. It is Jesus, the creator, before six stone pots. 
The first miracle, creation in Genesis. And now when Jesus is about to perform his first miracle, there is something about the glorious creator that's being revealed. You say, well, you know, that may be a, a little bit of a stretch, you know. That whole thing about six pots and that being man, is that really, really? Well, some of you are really interested in, uh, in uh, you know, in times, you own every left behind book, you have every prophecy, you know, email that's ever been emailed, saved, and you've been forwarding them to my messenger. Stop it. I know. Jesus is coming back. Okay? I know. Stop it. I'm helping some people in here. But he's standing before these six. Well, why does that stand for man? Well, let's look at Revelation uh, chapter 13. And we know that this is speaking of Antichrist, but I want you to see this clearly and see the connection to the glory of creation and that Jesus is our creator. This is what it says of the Antichrist. He says, here's wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of man. His number is 666. Six is the number of man. Six water pots, six days of creation. This is about Jesus standing at creator before creation. He is revealing himself as creator. And there's something in the heart of, of, of children that even long to know about their creator. I heard this story about a little boy who went to his daddy. He said, daddy, where do babies come from? He looked down at him. He said, that's easy, son. Adam and Eve, they got together and they had babies and then those babies grew up and they had babies and they went on and on. That kid just kind of said, okay. And he went over to his mom. He said, mom, where do babies come from? And his mom looked down at him and said, uh, well, son, I believe babies, you know, were actually evolved from monkeys. <laughs> and... Um, you know, it took a long time for the monkeys to become people, but then monkeys became babies, became man. The little boy said, okay. He runs back to his dad and says, dad, you lied to me. You told me babies came from Adam and Eve, and mom said they come from monkeys. Dad looked down at his son and he said, she's talking about her side of the family. <laughs> Here's what I want you to know today. I really do want you to know this. Jesus is your creator. 
He's your creator. And as creator, he knows what is best for the one that he has designed. As the master craftsman who made you, crafted you, formed you with a specific purpose in mind, he is the creator of all. And so don't think that you can add to, man, I know what's best for me. No, see, it was in this moment that he revealed himself as creator. And when he reveals himself as creator, is that if he is a creator, then I am the creation. So I need to find out what his will for me is because he made me. So standing here in this first miracle, he declares himself to be creator. And by the way, if you have a hard time with that, again... Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says that since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. This is the part that blows the theologian's mind. He says the Trinity is revealed in creation so that they are what? Without excuse. See, this first miracle is saying, listen, you have a creator, a God who loves you who made you, who fashioned you for a specific purpose. The second glory that's revealed in this first miracle is the glory of purification. This is really amazing. The glory of purification comes uh, when, when we see it in uh, verses 6 and 7. It says, Now there was set six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Now, these stone pots, listen, were created solely for purification. This is connected to a tradition of the elders, which was supposed to serve Judaism as a fence, a kind of as a pr protective barrier. It was to go a little further than what was expected. That's what, that's what this tradition literally uh, was called. It was like a, a fence. It was a border that if you did these things, it would somehow uh, honor God. And, and, and what, they, what they begin to do with these ceremonial water pots, with, pots which by the way, uh, some people believe that the, the, the person who was in the wedding or perhaps the, the owner of the house would have been a Pharisee because it would have been really quite expensive to have six stone water pots. And the Pharisees were given to this, this washing, this ceremonial washing. By the way, this isn't about hygiene. This is not about hygiene. It's about something more than hygiene. They're not just washing in these pots to wash their hands. Let me show it to you in Mark chapter 7. Notice this. It says in verse 2 and 3, it says, Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, notice that word, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. 
for the Pharisees and all of the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. And here's what, here's what they were saying. If you go out into this world, into this sinful world, into this quote unquote leprous world, and then you come back in to fellowship, you are defiled until you ceremoniously wash, until you're religiously washing in this water. You're just religiously washing. They were saying, listen, you're not just a dirty person for eating with unwashed hands. They said, you're a sinful person because you are not before people washing so everyone can see that you are ceremonially clean. Now, let me help you with that. This really represents man's attempt to be pure before God. But let me just tell you, every time that we attempt in our efforts to be pure before God, we will fall woefully short. Notice that these pots were not full. They were not full. The condition of this ceremonial washing was headed toward empty. And let me just tell you, for those under the sound of my voice, perhaps those who are watching online, our attempts to be righteous before God by our own deeds will be much like these stone pots half full. We, we will never be able to cleanse ourselves. My, my heart aches when I hear people say, well, I believe I'll go to heaven if I do a little more good than bad. Oh, I've got good news and bad news. Bad news is that theology will carry you straight to an eternity separated from God. But the good news is Jesus has come to stone pots. And says, fill them up to the brim. The stone pot, this one that represents man, is meant to be purified thoroughly. The purpose of the pot was meant to be thoroughly purified by its creator. And Jesus said, fill them with water. And I want you to hear that today. I want you to hear the voice of your creator looking at you, the stone pot, and say, I want to fill you with the pure water to wash you and regenerate you and make you what you could never make. And by the way, I want to fill you to the brim. I want to fill you to the brim and wash you and make you clean. The cleansing work of Jesus is complete. Let's just read some familiar verses so that you can finally come to terms that with this truth, he has forgiven you thoroughly and completely and perfectly. Notice what Psalm 103 verse 12 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Oh man, I tell you, this is where your flesh starts freaking out and your spirit starts coming alive. 
Your flesh freaks out because your flesh knows you were sleepwalking this morning to your coffee pot. And your husband left his shoes out again and you kicked it in the dark. And in a sudden flash and loss of control, there were words and thoughts and murderous thoughts that cruised through your conscious mind. Your flesh isn't comfortable with this idea that he really separated me from my sin as far as the east is from the west. Listen, he fills the pot to the brim. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All, all unrighteousness. You see, I believe that the church that carries the cross must be given to movement. And the church that lives in a consciousness of sin is paralyzed. If you live and all you're aware of are your misdeeds and misgivings and the twisted nature on the inside of the flesh, then you will live paralyzed doing nothing for the kingdom. But if you can move from being sin conscious to being God conscious, knowing that every sin, every guilty stain is washed by the perfect work of the cross, suddenly you can say, I can give my life to him without shame, without without reserve. I can give myself fully to him and do what he's called me to do because he has cleansed me to the brim. That's a good word. <laughs> you say, what does it look like? If you could have spiritual eyes for a moment, you would understand the second Corinthians chapter five describes it in perfection. Verse 21 says, for he, this is God made him Jesus who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Here's what happened. Here's what happened in this moment. You're the stone pot. And the water gets poured in. The water is the, the washing work of Jesus received by grace through faith. It is receiving that work into, and it washes you thoroughly. And then suddenly, God takes the sin that was on your life, that belonged to you, that was deserving of death, and Jesus bears that sin. And then God takes the righteousness of the perfect spotless lamb, and he places it, places it upon the one who places faith in him. Think of this. If you're born again here, God thinks of you and your righteousness as being the same as Christ. I aim to make your flesh uncomfortable, but make your spirit come alive because that's Bible. And if you understand that you are washed that thoroughly, God will then lead you into a life of, that is given to his purpose. Now, do I believe that we continue to sin? Absolutely not. That is nonsense. You know what you are? You're back there half full. God's not a good negotiator, by the way. He doesn't negotiate well. He's like... I want all your life. Not some. And then he demonstrated, I'll give all of my life. You give all of yours. That's our response. 
But our purity before God is perfect to the brim. Last thing this first miracle points toward is the glory of transformation. It points to the glory of transformation. And we find this uh, when the master of the feast tastes the water made to wine. It says in verse 9, when the master of the feast tasted the water that was made to wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn it knew drew the water new, the master of the feast called who? The bridegroom and said, every man at the beginning sets out good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. Notice this. It goes from water to wine, water to wine. Now the science nerd in me started going down a rabbit trail in this. Okay. As I was readying myself for this message. So the science nerd in me begins to know, okay, water is H2O, but wine is a lot of carbon added to hydrogen atoms and oxygen atoms. Carbon is the building block of all creation. Back to point one. In this moment, he takes something common, water, and then makes something supernatural. He takes something common and makes something supernatural. This is, in this moment, a picture of the new creation. This is a picture of the new creation. Um, I love this too, because not only does it show that Jesus is master of carbon, but you know it takes time to make wine. A really good one? Maybe a year, two So what kind of God must this be that not only does creation respond to him, but so does time? And I want to show you this. The glory of transformation in Christ is this. If you get cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, the next thing that's coming is the Holy Spirit where God is able to take you further along in your walk than time would have naturally allowed. See, all of you guys have been thinking that I, getting saved was on him. Being transformed, that's on me. Ah. I don't see that that way. I say that somebody can get born again and suddenly they're years down a path. When they allow the transforming work 
of the new creation. Look at this. This is so good. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 17 says that therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is what a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. Look at Galatians six fifteen. This is so good. He says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation, the transformation that comes through Jesus. That's what counts. But you need to know there is an active agent in transformation. Just like there's an active agent from grape juice becoming wine. Let me just skip to it. The active agent is the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And throughout the scripture, he is described as wine. And he is also contrasted with natural wine. He is the active agent in your transformation. Now, you say, okay, where is the verse that contrasts wine with the Holy Spirit? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Ephesians 5, 17 and 18 says, Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine. This is natural wine. By the way, if there's any question, drunkenness is sin. Just repent and stop it. Drunkenness is sin. It says, do not be drunk with wine. Where is dissipation? Other translations would say debauchery, all kinds of sin. But put that scripture back up there. Put that scripture back up there. I want people to see it. Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the spirit. Notice, here's the verse that contrasts the two. This is a contrast. What does this mean? He says, there are people who try to replace holy wine with natural wine. How do they do it? Have you ever seen someone who is a totally different person when they've been drinking? You're looking at one. Oh, not the natural wine. The spiritual wine. Man, I see, I'm telling you, I know who I was at age 21, but I'm telling you there was a transformation that came when my creator came over me and I was filled to the brim and washed and made clean and the glorious presence of the Holy Spirit came into my life. I should have not been as far as I was, but in days I would see healings. In days I would see salvations. In days I would see the kingdom of God expand. I want to tell you, there's no substitute for the baptism in the Holy Spirit. There's no substitute for the transformation that comes through Christ. And by the way, you need to know, in all four Gospels, this is what it said of Jesus. There is one coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. All four Gospels. So the water to wine is like, I need... The transforming work of the Holy Spirit 
You say, what does it look like? Ezekiel tells us perfectly when describing this covenant. It says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take out the heart of stone and, uh, and uh, out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk. Look, look at this. And cause you to walk in my statutes. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Do you see this? Transformation isn't on us. It's on the person of the Holy Spirit. He said, I'm going to put my spirit in you and I'm going to cause you to walk in my precepts. I'm going to give you that heart. It comes from the person of the Holy Spirit and there's no replacing it. There's no replacing it. I want to give you one final thought. There's a lot of misunderstanding about this next statement. Mary comes to Jesus and says, they have no wine. And he says, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. In the next breath, Mary turns to the servants and says, do whatever he says. I mean, it's like, I mean, if it were me, and on the surface level, I just said, mom, I'm not doing it. My mom turns around and says, he's doing it. I mean, this may have been one of those moments where Mary looks at Jesus and said, hey, listen, I'm not one of your little disciples. Your mother. No, it's not true. It's not true. It's not true. Mary is a disciple. All right. That was just funny. Bad pastor. All right. Well, I, just, I hope somebody doesn't make a YouTube video out of that. Um, so, here's what you need to understand about really what's happening in this conversation. First, I mean... Did anyone really wonder how she knew? How did she know this was the moment? I mean, how did she know that her son was about to work miracles? I mean, it could have been that whole Gabriel thing busting into her whole private life and that whole virgin birth thing. Okay, I think there were some things she was treasuring in her heart that something supernatural was about to come through Jesus, but she knew something in this moment was actually going to begin the, the manifestation of the glory of Jesus. But this is what he said. This is what I believe he said more closely in our language. This isn't my wedding. This isn't my wedding. He said, my hour has not yet come. Now, wait a minute. In minutes, his hour of earthly ministry is initiated. There was no turning back from this miracle, which would be the beginning of the manifestation of his glory. So what hour is he talking about? Could he be talking about his earthly ministry? Sure, it could include that. 
Or is he talking about his wedding reception in Revelation chapter 19? Called the wedding supper of the Lamb. And this is what he says. It says in Revelation, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his wife has what? Made herself ready. What is this saying? At the marriage supper of the Lamb, the groom Jesus has been making everything right, has been preparing everything necessary for this moment, and Jesus is saying, at my wedding, there'll be more than enough wine. Everything will be fully supplied at my marriage supper. And I want to tell you today, everything necessary for you to know him as creator, for you to be filled up to the brim with his forgiveness and to be totally transformed by his work of the Holy Spirit has been prepared and it is available now. We're headed toward the marriage supper of the Lamb. But you're only invited if you go to this wedding first. You need the first miracle in you before we experience the fullness of the marriage supper of the Lamb.